I want to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and join me in the book of Judges. The Judges in the first part of the Bible, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, do not, Deuteronomy, then Joshua and Judges. So in the very beginning of the Bible, we're in chapter 3. If you need sermon notes, the fellows have some of those. Just raise your hand and they will hand that to you so you can follow along a little bit better. Several years ago, one of our ladies was telling me about an experience that they had, and I recalled this. Uh, it happened probably about 10, 15 years ago. One of our ladies was leaving church. Her husband wasn't there with her that day, but she had her two small kids in the car. And on the way home, her preschooler, who was around four years' age, and she were having a conversation about some of the things that they had learned, the child had learned in the junior church program. And the child was talking about that whole idea of asking Jesus to come into your heart, being freed of your sin and being forgiven of them all, and asking the Lord to enter into the life. And the child and mom were talking, and the child asked mom, Mom, have you ever asked Jesus to come into your heart? Mom responded the affirmative and said, Yes, I did. When I was a teenager, I prayed and I asked Jesus to forgive me my sins and come and live in my heart. And the child thought about that and said, Did Daddy? And start asking the different questions. They get home, and when they come into the, into the driveway, she's unbuckling, getting the child out, and the child said, Can I give you a hug? And the child started giving mommy a hug. But when the child was given the hug, it wasn't the normal hug. The child was putting their ear real close to here. And mom said, What are you doing? I'm listening for Jesus in your heart. And mom said, well, what do you hear? I hear thump, thump, thump. I think he's making coffee. <laughs> now, whatever, whatever children have in their mind, you know, we train the kids. We talk to the kids. My son's having an experience where he's trying to teach grace to his son. And so it, over the last couple of weeks, they were trying to teach the picture of grace. And so in one setting where there needed to be, there was, there was a form of correction taking place. Mom said to the boy, I'm going to give you grace. Grace means this time you do not get it, but what you did was wrong, but you're going to get grace. And so I'm not going to discipline you as severely as what we normally do. We'll have this conversation prayed. And so a day or so went by, and boy got into trouble again. Dad's taking to, to correct him. And the little boy said, Dad... I have an idea. You can show grace. Mom shows grace. You can show grace. Dad, think about it. You may want to pray about it. Okay. Dad's thought about it. He says, son, this time I'm going to show you love. Okay. It's good to train the kids early. It's important to train the kids early. We need to do that because that impacts the next generations. That didn't always happen in Bible times and not with people who know the Word of God. Sometimes they don't train their kids. Sometimes they don't expose them. That's some of the problem that we looked at last week in the book of Judges. They had heard about the Word of God. They were told to bring up the children and to train them and to talk about those things. But what happened in the book of Judges is it would happen for a while and then they would stop. Do you remember the sequence of the book of Judges? All of a sudden the Jews would get into a rebellious state. And they would get into this, this rejection of God and going after other things, and God would reprove them. There would be correction. God would use other peoples, other groups, other, other tribes to come in and to spiritually spank them by overcoming them, overpowering them, putting them under the taxation of some of these enemies. They would repent after a period of time. They would call upon the Lord and say, please forgive us, we've done wrong. God would hear their repentance, and God would all of a sudden send 
send a rescuer, a judge, a deliverer, if you would, who would come. Some of those judges we, we looked at one last week when we looked at Othniel. This morning we're going to look at another Ehud. Samson is one of those judges. Samuel later on becomes one of those acting judges. They, they would come on the scene and they would deliver the people and they would rescue the people, if you would, from that oppression of an enemy and then they would do some magistrate work. There would be a period of rest. This was the cycle through the book of Judges. They would have a period of rest and there would be no enemy and no conquering for a while. But then what would happen is they would start the same cycle again. The next generation the next group of people would forget the Word of God. So it was so important to impress upon them the Word of God, the Word of God, and to pass that on to the next generation so that they don't have this similar cycle in their life in modern days where God would have to use other forms of correction than some tribal enemy or, or distant, uh, distant government. But rather, God would discipline in other ways. And you and I need to learn this, that we need to be able to keep training in the Word of God, to follow it, to avoid this cycle. Now, in this cycle, you have a number of heroes mentioned. There's a dozen of them in the book of Judges. We want to take a time and to look at each one of those judges in particular. Some of them we'll spend a little bit more time on. But the one we want to look at today is one whose story is told in chapter 3. It's not a whole lot given, but in chapter 3 we learn about one judge. His name is Ehud. He's, uh, he's an unusual character. In chapter 3, his story is given in a, in a broad section of Scripture. What's interesting is if we read through the story, which we will in a moment, there's a lot of detail given. A lot of descriptive detail. Kind of gross detail quite frankly as we read it through <coughs> and we give the explanation of some of the terms that they're using. But I want you to catch something. There's two main characters in this story. Ehud is the good guy. He's the judge. And then there's Eglon. He's the bad guy. He's the Moabite invader. He's the king who God is using to come in and spank the Jews because of their the rebellion that, that uh, they have now repented of and God is sending Ehud as as far as the rescuer. Moab is one of those ancient tribes that's an enemy to the Jews. They have been for a number of years. They're descendants of Lot's. And so the story is real detailed, giving a lot of things. Now, the two main characteristics stand out about these two guys that, that plays into this. Ehud is a left-hander. He's a lefty. Eglon, it's going to be real clear that he is a very, very obese fella. Those two physical traits are going to become part of this story. That's why we called the sermon, The Day Lefty Let Fatty Have It, because there are some things that take place that are just amazing in this story. But the result of Ehud's victory over Eglon is going to give 80 years of peace. This is the longest section of peace that they're going to have in the book of Judges. Under any judge, this is going to be it. Two generations that they're going to be blessed by God. Here's the lesson that I think we need to be looking at when we go through the story. Is The lesson is going to be basically this. How do we bring God's blessings down upon our lives and the lives of others around us. Now in this story there's three ingredients that we're going to look at. Let me read the story then let's explain. You follow along as I read. I don't know what translation you have. I'm using King James and I'll throw in some of my own terminology as I start reading. Chapter 3 of the book of Judges starting with verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man who was left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto, or a tribute, unto Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a dagger, which had two edges, about a cubit in length. And he did gird it, or hide it, under his raiment, upon his right thigh. He brought the present unto Eglon, the king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. 
And when he had made an end, that is Ehud, made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present, but he himself turned again from the quarries. So he had left, now he's going back, that were at Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him were put out from him. Ehud came unto him. He was sitting in his summer palace, or a rooftop palace, parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And Eglon arose out of his seat. Ehud put forth his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly. The haft also, this is gross, also went in after the blade, and the fat closed up upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of the belly, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went forth from, through the porch, shut the doors of the parlor upon him, and locked them. And when he was gone out, Eglon's servants came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covers his feet in his summer chamber. They tarried till they were ashamed, and then, behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them, and, behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. Ehud had escaped while they tarried, and passed beyond the quarries, and escaped unto Seraph. And it came to pass when he was come there that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord has delivered into your hands the Moabites. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan towards Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. They slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a one. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore or eighty years. Lots of details. Some kind of gory, some kind of gross. Here's the lesson, though. If we want God's blessings upon our life, it starts with this. There needs to be a genuine confession before God. A confession of sin. That's what the people of Israel did. And we're not talking make-believe. We're not talking fun confession. There was a story told about four preachers out for lunch one day, and they were all friends. They worked in this one community. And a couple of them, in their churches, they had this confession thing where you go and confess to the preacher. And so they were talking about that, comparing notes. And one of the fellows said, you know what? We should confess our sins to one another. Maybe we should do that and keep one another kind of accountable. And it would be good for us because we do this for church people, but nobody kind of in our church does it for us. And we don't want to bear our souls, but let's do it before the four of us. They agreed to do that. And the first one said, okay, here's my, here's my besetting sin. Though I preach against it, every so often, I just like to take a real stiff drink and get drunk. But I, nobody in my church knows that. And he says, you know, and I don't want him to know. The next man says, oh, he says, I do the same thing. I preach against smoking. And he says, especially big stogie cigars. And he says, and I love them. And I end up smoking a whole bunch of them at a pack. And he says, but that's my besetting sin. The third guy said, oh, he says, I just love the racetrack. I love to go down there in bed. And even though I preach against that type of thing, he says, I go about 100 miles away from town and I find the racetrack and I bet there. And he says, and I have a great time. The fourth man just kept silent looking at the other three. And they said, come on, we've all shared. Come on, come on. He said, uh, I don't know. Come on, come on. He says, well, my besetting sin is I love to gossip and I can't wait to get home to call all your church people. <laughs> we're not talking about that type of confession, that type of silliness that's taking place. What we're talking about is real genuine confession that here it was needed. Look at what happens. The author is trying to get you and me to catch that the people have done really a bad thing. He makes it very clear the children of Israel, we got back up to verse 12. I didn't start with that one. That was the beginning of this story. It says the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, because they did, had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you see it there? God says it 
twice. He makes sure that we as readers catch this, that they had really done wrong. They have drifted away from following the Lord. They are now into some type of paganism, some types of sin. They're practicing the, the idolatry. They're practicing the immorality that we talked about last week, that a lot of the Canaanites had, where their worship center was more of an orgy center, was more of a sexual activity and entertainment than it was real worship. How they would use drunkenness, how they would use sexual uh, immorality, how they would use all that as part of their worship as an excuse. The Jews got into it. And God twice says they had done wrong. They have done wrong. And as a result, these people who had done wrong, they're going to be suffering a lot of different details. You know, they lost the fear of God. They then, they lose the favor of God, and now they're losing fellowship with God. And God is sending the enemy into the land. That was the way he told them he would deal with them in that time period, that their the conviction would often come through some enemies, through some conquering them. That was their story. That was their case. And so here they are. They have to, in order to bring blessings back upon their life, they have to make confession. And they do. They pray unto the Lord. They ask the Lord to be able to work with them and to heal them and to help them. And it says, as the passage goes along, that the Lord, that when the children of Israel, verse 15, cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up the deliverer. So we have God not just saying they needed it, but when they confessed, he heeded it. He listened to them. He heard them. And he He's responding by offering them a deliverer. Here's the forgiveness factor. Here's the forgiveness package. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to send a deliverer and bring you back into my favor, bring you back into my fellowship. These folk, you know, if they want God's blessings, they needed to make genuine confession. The story is still the same today. If we want God's blessings upon our lives, upon our church, upon our family, then we need to make sure that we are having a right walk, rock, walk with the Lord, that we are making sure that we confess before the Lord, that we are making sure that we admit, we take ownership of when we do wrong. Here, here's some facts. Facts about confession. God does not let sin go unchecked or unchallenged. You may be thinking you're getting away from with it, but God says you will reap what you sow. Payday someday. There is going to be some form of discipline. He says that you need to make confession or I will chasten. In fact, God doesn't overlook the sin even though we want him to. Whom I love, I chasten, he says. That God will deal with us that way. He will correct. Why? Because even though he wants to show grace, he loves us. He loves us and will correct us so that we learn from it. And so no matter what the sin is, if we confess, God will respond with grace. That grace is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now here's the phenomenal picture from Israel's story. That no matter what the sin was, he was willing to forgive them. No matter how many times they've repeated it, he's willing to forgive them. No matter how long that they have tarried. Now for a number of years he's willing to forgive them. If we make confession, the key is if. The key is if you, if you are going to say yes that was wrong. By the word of God I violated it. And I need to have your forgiveness. I need to make things right. There was a preacher, W.F. Marsh is his name, who told the story about how he was preaching. And he was preaching a number of years ago in a small community and in this community where he preached he said he preached on the passage from Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 
one that talked about David's sin. David's sin with Bathsheba that he tried to hide, that he tried to cover up, that David didn't want to confess. And David writes later on, he says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old. There was great conviction. It was stirring me. It was, it was beating me up on the inside. Well, he told us that account and he talked about how we need to make confession. And we as God's children at times need to make not only confession, but make things right. After the sermon, one young man came up. This fellow worked in a small business there where they made wooden boats. And he said that he worked there for a number of years already, and he had done something, but he was so afraid to confess it and to especially go to his boss and ask for forgiveness. Because he said, my boss will think I'm a hypocrite if I do that. And the pastor said, well, what would the Spirit of God want you to do? He says, yeah, but you don't understand. If I go and tell him what I've done, he'll, they'll, they'll laugh at me. They'll think, that, they'll, they'll think that my whole religion is a mockery. And the pastor said, well, here, listen, here's what the scripture says. No wonder you're under conviction. You're just hiding something. He says, but I don't know what to do. Well, surely you need to take care of this. And he said, well, let me tell you, then you'll understand. He says, what I've been doing is I've been making my own boat at home. And so for the last year, I've just been fooling with it. My spare time, I've taken every so often pockets full of copper nails because we'll use those nails. They don't rust. I'll take the copper nails from my employer. And I take them home, and that's what I've been using to build my own boat. And I tell myself, and he says, and it's kind of true, they're very cheap. He's not going to miss them. He has so many of them. And besides, he doesn't pay me that much of a wage. And this is kind of my idea of better compensation. The pastor said, yeah, but what does the Spirit of God say? I don't know. I just, if I tell him, I might lose my job. Well, a few weeks went by. The pastor then heard from this young man. The young man said, the Spirit of God would give me no peace. My bones waxed old while I kept silence. And he said, finally, I went to my boss. And I confessed to him, and I told him what I was doing, and I offered to pay for all the nails. He said, my boss just stood there and looked at me. He said, I thought for sure I was going to get fired. I thought for sure he had raked me over the coals. My boss looked at me and said, you know, I've always thought you were a hypocrite. But any man's religion... That would move him to pay for a bunch of cheap old nails must have something to it, and I want to know more about it. Confession doesn't always turn into that type of a, of a story where it's, it ends up good. Sometimes there's other consequences, but still confession needs to be made. In fact, Marsh told that story in another church a few weeks later about that account, and when he told that story, he said afterwards a woman came up to him. The woman came up and she says, you know, I've got some copper nails that I've been hanging on to. They aren't real nails. I'm not a boat person. But I've borrowed some books from some people. And I've never taken them back. I still read them and it kind of bothers me when I read the books that maybe I should take them back. And God's really speaking to me about those copper nails that I should make restitution for. And he said, she did. And then he went on, he said, most everywhere where he preached, he said it was amazing how he found different people with copper nails. Things that they needed to make right, but they just hadn't. Whatever it may be. If you've got a copper nail, you cannot have God's blessings until you make confession and restitution a biblical matter. Whatever it be, understand that God's blessings come when we make genuine confession, when we make things right. 
then God can bless. Well, that's exactly what happens here in the book of Judges. Those people make confession. God is all of a sudden going to give them heavenly blessings. It comes, secondly, by this ingredient. Second ingredient is a willingness to be committed to doing something for God. That's Ehud. He had a willing commitment to do something for God. He isn't sure what, as the story unfolds, we're not certain what it is, but here's what he's willing to do. He is willing to use what he had to serve God. Now, what he has isn't much in other people's minds. In fact, the story, as the account says, he doesn't have much of a weapon. It's not a normal sword. The Hebrew word that's used when he says he made himself a dagger is used only here. It's not used elsewhere in the Bible. And it talks about basically a shaft about a foot long in length. And it seems to be from scholars, Hebrew scholars are saying, it seems to be something that didn't really have the normal handle. It just seems to be a real sharp iron object that's kind of real rough hewn. That's what we know about it. But the characteristic that is most pointed out in this text is Ehud is a man that's different than the majority of individuals of his time period. He's marked as a man with different set of skills. Limited skills. The Hebrew word for left-handed literally means deformed in his right hand. Now, I don't know if that means that his hand was handicapped, wrinkled up, crippled up. That could be the possibility. It could be the idea that this was a genuine physical handicap that he had based on the word that is used to describe him as a left-handed individual. It could be because some will point out that others carried the tribute, not him. It could be that when the battle is done, the wording from the author in verse eight in uh, the in verse twenty nine is very clearly trying to draw a contrast that you have this left handed man going to battle and there's he's leading against troops that are ten thousand and he makes sure that the King James says lusty men able bodied full bodied. And so maybe there is that contrast that they had full abilities whereas Ehud did not. That seems to be the indication. But to be honest and be fair, there's the others in the tribe of Benjamin who are left-handed as well. In fact, later on in this book and later on in the, under the kings, there's going to be a whole set of soldiers that are left-handed or several of them are described as being able to use both hands, which is very unusual. So is it a physical deformity or is it just the fact that he is different than most? And we understand this. That back in those days in particular, even like today, the vast majority of people are right-handed. And back in those days, being left-handed was considered to be, you know, out of your mind. Not a good thing. Some of you grew up, and you even experienced this years ago, that at some schools and some settings, they would discipline you if you used your left hand to force you to become right-handed. Back in ancient days, that was much more common. In fact, in the ancient Latin, we have the word sinister, sinister comes from, sinisteros. The word sinister in the Latin was literally left-handed. So the associations in ancient period, left-handed was not a norm. It was considered to be an abnormality. Was it a physical abnormality or was it just a social one? I can't say for certain. It seems like it could go both ways. But the fact is, he was abnormal by most standards. Most people would look and say, you can't do it. You can't lead. But here he says, now wait a minute. I may only be able to use my left hand, but I'm going to use what I have for the Lord. And some would suggest that God used his 
inability, his handicap, if you would. Because by putting that dagger on this side, it would be the side that history tells us that often when they go in courts, they would search this side for weapons. Not this side, because right hand would reach across. And so whatever the case is, he has a willingness and a mindset that I will use what abilities or inabilities I can in order to do something for God and for God's people. Others will think I can't do it, but I will do it. I will use with my limitations. Hudson Taylor, any of you ever hear of him? Famous missionary to China, opened up the land of China. Dozens of other missionaries came. He translated multiple books. He was asked one time late in life, why is it God used you to do such a phenomenal work in missions? Here was his response. That's classic response. God chose me because I was weak enough. Isn't that a wonderful way of putting it? I was weak enough. God does not do his great works by large committees. He trains someone to be quiet enough and little enough. Then he uses them. So that it's clear that it's a work of God, not something that's, that's attributed to you and me. And so he, that's the way Ehud looked at it. He says, I am willing to be used of God with what ability or inabilities I have. I'm going to use them for the Lord. He's willing to serve by using what he has. He's willing to serve, a willing commitment to take advantage of the opportunities provided. The opportunity here is very unique. As you go through the story, there's the opportunity that arises because they come. It's tribute time. It's that time of the year. They've got to bring the annual taxes, the annual payment to the Moabites. He comes into Eglon's court. When he comes into the court, he brings the tribute money. He's part of that group that brings it, that puts it down. And then they leave. And as they leave, then Ehud, after they travel a distance, he goes to the quarries or to literally the sculptured rock. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then he returns to Eglon's fortress, castle, and he meets with Eglon in private. Now there are some writers who say that, that Ehud showed cowardice. Because when they first came in with the tribute money, why didn't he immediately strike? He was afraid. He didn't attack immediately. Well, that's not necessarily the case. If we just think about it from a practical point of view. They come in. Here's the court. Others are bringing tribute. He's coming in. Eglon is sitting up here. And there's this setting. And it's very public to bring the tribute. Can you think of some good reasons why he wouldn't attack at that moment? Any? Can you think of any good reasons? Okay. There's a lot more people there. Would that be a hindrance to saying, okay, I'm not going to get as close? Okay. There's the setting. I, I just wrote down several. Okay. The uh, increased security would be there. He's coming now, and he's going to introduce himself as part of this party. Then he can come back later, and he's already been there. He's already paid tribute. He's already given the impression that, hey... I'm with you, Eglon. I'm not a threat to you. So he would get quicker access the second time, short time later. You can think about it this way. If he came in, wouldn't you want to just assess the situation, see the, the setting first of all? It's not a matter of cowardice. Besides, he has other people with him. It seems that initially with Eglon, with Ehud's thought, this could have been a one-way mission. He's going to assassinate. He doesn't know how he's getting out of there. And so get the rest of the party safely away, and they, they get out of the area. It doesn't show cowardice. It just shows cleverness. And so what happens is you read now, and it says down in verse 19 and verse 20, as they traveled away after paying tribute, he goes as far as, look at verse 19, the quarries, literally the sculptured rocks. 
There's a lot of discussion of what that is. What are the sculptured rocks? A lot of Hebrew scholars end up saying, this is probably memorial stones. Stones that have been placed, like in Joshua's case, in this region. Stones that have been placed to mark that this was a spot where God wrought a special victory. You know, kind of the stones by the River Jordan. The stones that were significant stones that were where they took vows and oaths. Well, by that time, if he's going to these sculptured stones, stones that indicate something happened and there was an encounter with God there, so it's kind of like a a raised altar, a raised memorial stone that was put there. Remember, there's there's a sense of paganism and superstition here that people would equate places to visions, places to dreams, places to encounters with their God. So he goes this far, turns around, and he comes back, and he says, I've gone as far as those stones. You know those stones? Those stones that were put there because of what happened in the past? I have a message from God. Well, that would make sense that Eglon would listen to him with his superstitious concept that, yeah, those, I've heard about those stones. That's where God did something special. That's where God met with you people. And you got a message from God, and it would just play into the scenario so much more better and quickly. Well, he comes back, says, I have a secret message for you, just for you, Eglon. And Eglon is, is involved with this, and he's, he perceives no threat from Ehud because of the previous encounter. And so they go up onto the rooftop where there's a pavilion. Now, in this pavilion, it could be that summer pala, a summer area of just getting away, but he's up there. And when he, when he says, I got a message, Eglon is so excited to hear the message, he wants to hear it in secret, he waddles out of the chair, comes close, and that's when Ehud strikes. And it's kind of a gross whole story about how he strikes and, you know, the dirt comes out and all that kind of stuff. Well, what happens then is Ehud locks the doors. Because apparently where it talks about his covering his feet, this chamber was also his bathroom. It was his restroom. And so some think it's his bed, it's, most think it's his restroom. And so he closes, locks the doors on the bathroom, and he leaves. And the servants come and they're like, he's in there a long time, he's in there a long time, but they're embarrassed and he's in there a long time. And finally, they got to check it out because it's way too long, and they find him dead. But in that whole period of waiting... Whatever length of time, that gives Ehud enough time to get out without anybody questioning him, and he gets away, gets far enough away so that there's no troops are able to catch up to him. And so here he is using his opportunity that was provided for him providentially in order to do this dastardly deed that was one of deliverance. The fact is, he used the opportunity. He took advantage of the occasion. That he was an individual who seized the opportunity without delay and saying, here's my chance, here's what I'll do, this is what God's called me to do, and I'll take advantage of doing it at this moment. You and I need to at times stop and say, procrastination and delay is not the best choice. Rather, what we should be doing is getting involved in taking the opportunities of making things right, taking the opportunities of dealing with those struggles that we have, taking the opportunities to minister to other people. When others who are struggling and battling and not saying, oh, you know what, somebody should do something, you do it. 
It's come to you. It's on your platter. It's on your plate. Taking the opportunities to train the young people. My, if there's anything here in this text, that would be it. Let's get involved with training the youth, warning them, teaching them, and you taking advantage of those opportunities. Taking advantage of defeating the enemy by sharing the Word of God, giving out the Word of God, and saying, I want to share the gospel. I want to give out tracts. I want to give out my witness. Why? Because that is where the victory is. That is where the power of God is. Taking the opportunities to pray and to fast for special occasions instead of just say, I'll wait until next month. But rather do it now. Employ the, the opportunity to worship, to learn God's word. To take advantage of those occasions God gives you to grow, to serve, to minister. Ehud was one that did that. Ehud is an individual who has a commitment to do something for God by using what he had. It wasn't much in other people's minds, but God used it by taking advantage of the opportunities he had by as well seeking to influence others to serve the Lord. He leaves Eglon's palace. He goes, and what does it say? He escaped, verse 26, tarried, passed beyond the quarries, and it came to pass when he was come, he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. So what does he do? He rallies others. He says, come, join me, help me in this fight, in this crusade. We need to defeat the Moabites. This is our chance. Let's serve God. God. Let's see what God can do. And there he is calling others to join him. He's willing to do something for the Lord and God's people by saying, join me and let's do the task. There's, a, there's stories that abound with people making excuses, but not Ehud. Ehud is one. And, and let me give you some of his excuses that maybe sound familiar to you. Excuses that are often given today. This is what Ehud could have said. He could have said, I am not as able as others. Others are more gifted and others are more talented. That is true. Others were more talented. Others were more, more of a threat with their right hand. In fact, when he calls for troops, did you catch? He calls for the Ephraimites. He doesn't even call for the Benjamites. Why? Benjamites were not the best of the warriors. He doesn't have all the skills that the Ephraimites have. And so here he is, an individual that could say, I don't have the gifts. I don't have the talents. I'm not as good as so-and-so. Can God work through me? And the answer is yes. He gave God his life, not his excuses. He could have said this. The job is just too big for me. It's just so massive. If you look at the battle and see what happens, there is, starts off in verse 13 where it tells you of the setting. Who comes to spank? It's not only Eglon and the Moabites, but it also says that there was the Ammonites and the Amalekites. There is a conglomeration, a coalition of different enemies that are there. The Moabites alone are 10,000. And they are strong-bodied. They are able. And Ehud doesn't say, oh, they're too big for me. No, with God, I'm in the majority. And so he goes out. Besides, it's been 18 years. It's been so long. What can we do about it? He doesn't give that excuse, though some modern-day Christians may. He doesn't say, you know, who am I? I'm not as gifted. He doesn't say the job is too big. He doesn't say this, I'm too young. The reason I point this out is, it says that the land has rest for 80 years. Then you read chapter 4, and it says, and Ehud died. Ehud lived 80 years beyond this. How old was he when he went in and slew Eglon? He couldn't have been real old. He could have been in the early years of his life, in, that, in those teens, those 20s, where he's going out and he's doing something that would typically be left for older folk. But he goes in and takes it up. He says, it's not my age that is going to make the difference. It's my faith. It's my reliance in the Lord. And there's one other thing. When he goes in, it's just him and him alone. Who am I? 
It's just me. He doesn't give that excuse. He doesn't say, I can't because I'm not as gifted. I can't because it's been, you know, there's, there's too big of a job. I can't because I'm too young. I can't because there's not many others. You can and you should. You can do a work for God. Don't give God excuses. Give God the opportunities to use you. David Livingston, missionary, down in Africa, reaching into the heart of Africa, reaching a lot of those tribal people. He gets this letter one day from people back in Britain, some of the mission agencies, and they said this, we want to send you workers, but can you tell us are the good roads by which we can safely send some young men to assist you in the Lord's work? Here's what he wrote back. He wrote back this comment. If these young men need good roads before they will come to serve God, I don't want them here. He went on to say, I want only those men who will come and serve God where there are no roads. People who are willing to make a sacrifice. People who don't make excuses, but they make effort. You and I should be those type of people. Now, to have God's blessings, we need a genuine confession of sin. To have God's blessings, we need to have a willing commitment. A willing commitment to do something for God. To have God's blessings, we need this third ingredient. A personal confidence in the power of God. A personal confidence in the power of God. Watch the text. Watch when he calls the other troops and he says, Come to me. And he says, Rally to me. He blows the trumpet, verse 27, in the mountain of Ephraim. The children of Israel went down with him from the mountain before them. Now, I want to take you back before I read the next. Take you back to last week. Why is it that they were frequently defeated? Why is it the Jews go into the territory and they don't conquer. God said, I will give you the land. I will give you the land. I will give you the land. Because of lack of faith. A lack of faith that God could have victory over these different peoples, over these groups. Watch what Ehud says. Watch his faith come blaring off the page in verse 28. He said unto them, follow after me for the Lord has already in the past delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. There's his faith. He's already declaring that God has given us the victory. I trust God. God is going to help us to go into battle. He's going to give us the victory. God is bigger than these guys are. We may not have the weapons. We may not have the numbers. But we have God. And then he trusts God to maintain the victory. 80 years of peace. There's faith. There's faith from an individual who doesn't have much skill, much talent, much, of a, much ability by people's standards, doesn't have the age, doesn't have the companionship, but he says, I'm going to do a work for God, come join me, and they wisely join him. And they go out and they have this victory. And they, in fact, look how verse 30 ends up reading. Do you see the twist of the story? Moab was subdued that day under Israel. Now who becomes the master's? It's totally reversed. The entire story is reversed. Now Moabite, the Moabites are going to be under the Hebrews. Why? Because of one man saying, I'm willing to do something. Because of one man saying, I'm going to operate by faith. We've made confession, now let's move forward. And God uses him. It's amazing how God can use one individual who says, I want to make a difference. Telemachus, you ever read his story in the book of Martyrs? Telemachus is an individual from around the 300s. The, church, the, uh, the empire of Rome has already converted to Christianity. That means that now it's the legal religion. That means that now it's the popular thing to be a Christian. Most people are, are flocking to churches. They're flocking in on a regular basis. They have converted away from the pagan temples in Rome and throughout the empire. And now it is the in thing to be a believer. That doesn't mean they were all real believers. But it was the in thing. Most everybody called them Christ, themselves Christian. Most everybody was going to church. Doesn't mean they had a personal walk in faith and, and, and relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But there was one individual by the name of Telemachus who was very genuine. Very genuine in his faith. Who claimed to be a born again believer. He had stayed outside of the city of Rome and kind of went off by himself into the regions around and lived more of that hermit's type of lifestyle to give himself to prayer and to fasting and learning the word of God. But as he learned more of the word of God, there he said, I wanted to stay to have a more pure life, a more holy life. He was convicted. He was convicted by the fact that he wasn't ministering to people. He was, he was by himself living, quote-unquote, the Christian life, but not serving as a Christian should serve. He wasn't the salt. He wasn't the light unto the world. And so he was convicted by that, and he decided he'd go back into Rome, his hometown. And he went to the capital, and as he approached the capital, he came in, and the streets weren't as hectic this day as he suspected. In fact, he heard a lot of noise from the Colosseum area. You see, though they had converted to Christianity and people were, were flocking now to the churches, this day was a celebration day. One of their generals had just come back in the previous weeks or so and he had defeated the Goths in a major battle. I forget the general's name. It begins with an S and I can't remember the rest of it. And so they were having the celebration for several days in honor of this general who had won the victory. And this day, part of the victory celebration was a display of the gladiatorial games. Now, they had stopped the persecution of the Christians in the Colosseum. That was no longer kosher. That was no longer probable. But they kept on these fights, these gladiatorial games to the death. For some reason, they didn't see that as a moral problem, having men kill each other for the entertainment, for the sport. And so here's Telemachus. He's, he stops, talks a couple people, finds out most people are down there celebrating the great heroes back with the Roman legions. And, and so he goes down to the arena and enters in and he gets up in the, you know, in the uh, nosebleed section and looks down and he sees the gladiatorial games taking place that they are, they are for, for sport, for entertainment, trying to kill one another. He doesn't fathom this. He knows that it's been a subject of, of debate, that even in some of the churches they've been preaching against this, that this should stop, but it still hasn't stopped because the bloodlust of the crowds. So according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, he makes his way all the way down the grandstands and comes down and gets to the wall right by the edge of the arena, and there's the gladiators, and he's calling out, they need to stop. But the roar of the crowds, kill them, kill them, is, is you know, overbearing. So Telemachus, this older man, jumps over the wall. He runs in between those gladiators that are fighting. And one of them pushes him aside. He gets up and runs in the midst of them again. By now the crowd is like, what's he doing? What's, what's that, that fool doing? And they're starting to cheer and jeer, cheer against him to jeer him. And Telemachus gets pushed away. He gets knocked down. He's got the bloody nose. And as the fox's book of martyr keeps on continuing the story, he gets up and he plants himself in between. And the crowds become silent. And he has a moment to speak. And his moment of speak is, this is wrong. We are to live with peace. We are not to be killing one another for this sport, for the entertainment. Well, the captain of the guard that's standing and skirting the outside, he gives a signal to one of his soldiers who runs out there and savagely slays Telemachus. The arena just hushes. The gladiators drop their swords. In that moment, they realize how vicious of a people they have become, though they're calling themselves Christian. That's the very last day in Roman history where they have gladiatorial games in the Colosseum. 
Telemachus, the one person, stopped something so savage by his own personal sacrifice. One person can make a difference. It doesn't always call for us to give our lives to death, but it calls for us to give our abilities, to give our gifts, to give our talents. It calls for us to say, we can do something for God. We can make a difference. And God wants us to make a difference. And he will assist us and help us to win that, that class that you go to school with, to win them to Christ. God will use you to make an impact on the lives of your co-workers. He can use you to help out those relatives whose families are falling apart. But if you take and say, I'm going to get involved. I'm left-handed. I'm young or I'm old. Uh, I'm just one. But watch what God can do. How God can make something great out of your efforts if you don't give him excuses, but you give him service. You give him efforts to say, I will serve. 